Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today we are with Michael, our resident ephesiologist, Matt Till, the recent Floridian transplant, and I'm Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church here in Houston. Uh, we have pure bonus material today. We are so excited. We are joined by Matt Marino, the lead pastor of Trinity Parish in St. Augustine, Florida. He is a rabid uh, Phoenix Suns supporter, and he is the president of the Ron Wolfley Fan Club. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I have never been accused of being a um, rabid Suns fan. That sounds like you're de-emphasizing how much I like the Suns. So it's, it's yeah. And Ron Wolfley is the business. Ron, I'm not sure there's a Ron Wolfley fan club, but if there was, I I would jump on. It's so great, uh, listeners or uh, other podcasters with us. You just need to go and look up Ron Wolfley. And just go and listen to him. He is a pure joy. He is a pure joy. So, uh, Matt, we are we are thrilled that you are with us. Uh, so, Mr. Till, where are we going today? Why do we have Matt on this podcast? Where are we going today? Yes, indeed. Um, well, today uh, we're talking about this idea of what unites us. So, you know, we've been talking about this this idea of what does the church look like um you know after evangelicalism uh, what's happening in the context of the church what's happening post covid and now we're beginning to ask important questions of where do we unite we've we've discussed a lot of uh, over the number of weeks of the number of things that are a plenty that divides but where can we find common ground at so today we've invited matt to join us matt we're so glad uh that you are here with us to, to have this conversation and Maybe, Michael, you could set us up a little bit as to what unites us, what has traditionally united us. And then, Matt, we want to hear from you, too, and vamp on it, go with it, run with it. So, Michael, hit us up, tee us up. Yeah. Well, we're, of course, as you mentioned, Matt, uh, we're asking this question, what comes after evangelicalism? Uh, if there is something that comes after evangelicalism and, and what's going to give it shape? And uh, last week, we talked about the ever-changing American worldview. Matt, I listened to your podcast last week on deconstructionism. Uh, that was a great podcast uh, because it certainly fits into what we're seeing in this changing uh, climate of our culture today. But where do we go from there? Like you said, what, what does come next? And I think a part of answering that question is deciding in some way, what is it that unites us? Um, and I think historically speaking, we have some very good resources, of course, at our disposal to really answer that question um, and answer it, I, I would suggest, in, in a rather categorical way, that these are things evangelicals and Christians of all times have believed um, everywhere uh, and by everyone, as we will make reference uh, frequently to Vincent of Lorenz, who gives us that kind of definition of a consensual theology uh, of what people believed everywhere, all time, and and uh, in every place. 
And so I've kind of, if you will, have um, reduced that to maybe not reduce it. Maybe I've amplified it to uh, five points that are easy for us to remember uh, that we believe in one God uh, who is revealed in two revelations um, th- that being his own personal revelation through his son, but also propositionally uh, through the word. Uh, we might think of it as well in terms of two revelations being of special and general nature, uh, that God is a revealing God. He wants to be known, and he has done that primarily in those two revelations. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit which is the historic, of course, doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, the two promises, those promises being the remission of sins and the resurrection of life. And then finally, one church. And uh, and we often recognize that church as being holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Or we might think of it in terms of holy, universal, and missionary in nature. And so this outline, uh, if you will, I think in some ways represents what the church has indeed believed from early on. And um, and uh, so we're, we're grateful for Matt being here as we're going to enter into a, a bit of a conversation about how we get to that place and uh, what were some of the historical uh, creeds, if you will, that help to guide us in understanding what it is that we're to believe for all time and in every place. Mr. Marino, would you see, would you say, do I say father Marino? I just haven't, I haven't ever called you just not Matt. Uh, but now that we have two mats, I'm trying to make the quick distinction. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you separate between the two mats? You know, I don't know. You could, you could, I, I don't know how Matt Till wants to be referred to radio and TV, Matt versus versus father, Matt. I don't know. How, however you want it. <laughs> okay. I'm, so I'm and I can't even say the Floridian Matt now. See, that's not yeah, even fair. You're yeah, both you in Florida. You could okay. say racially handsome Matt, and we would know you're talking about the other one. <laughs> For our radio listeners, Matt Till is shaking his head. Um, so, so the question for you, Reno v. Till. <laughs> uh, so, what is uh, uh, as you were listening through, Michael list the one God? Um, oh goodness gracious! One well, God. It's supposed to be easy to remember. I, know, well, I knew it was one, two, three, two, one. So that's why I was like, wait, I'm missing one. So, one so, God, so two revelations. Kind of, yeah. When um, at what point do you feel, Matt, that that was like? Do you feel that is an all-time, everywhere, everyone sort of equation from what you have yeah, seen? So, so Vincent of Lorenz in the fourth century said, our, our, when we say Catholic, what we mean is that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. And, um, and so the early church, like what we're going through today is nothing new. The early church lived through all of this. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon told us. And that was certainly not true. And so so the the idea of creeds was was one of, you know, what are what do we agree on was the, you know, was the idea. And it basically came down to a matter of biblical interpretation. You know, coming coming from our esteemed seminaries, we were taught 
if you just use the right methods of interpretation, you'll always agree on what the scripture means. And and as 40,000 denominations attest to, that's just not the case. You know, Jesus prayed for us all to be one, and we made 40,000 denominations. So, so the the um the creeds are kind of the opposite of the confessions. You know, the confessions come later, and the confessions are really what's everything one ought to believe as a Christian? And of course, you know, we were we were writing those in response to how do you lead a church when we think the system of leadership is going off the rails? And the system of leadership was ruled by the man. And the problem with, you know, the, the upside of rule by the man, it's remarkably clear. You just do what the man tells you. The downside of rule by the man is he changes his mind. And so the church in the in the Reformation said, we need something a little more dependable to latch on to. Let's write a confession and tell people what to believe. Um, the creeds are a thousand years earlier in the in the latest. And they were answering a very different question. They were answering what's the very least we need to agree on to recognize Christ in somebody else. And, and so it's, it's actually an opposite inclination. Instead of what's the most we ought to believe, it's what's the least we must believe to see a common faith. And so the real reason we have creeds is because we, we had heresies. You know, each creed was an answer to a specific heresy. In the second century, you have the Gnostics, and uh, and so the the church writes this creed, which which we know is the Apostles' Creed, but it's basically an answer to the question of is Jesus really human? You know, it was it was impossible for the Gnostics to conceptualize Jesus as a as an actual real man who, you know, poops. So the Docetics or the Docetics were were. Uh, we're pitching this idea that Jesus just seems like a human, just seeming, just looks human. When, but when you get really close and you scratch him, he's he's actually not going to bleed because everybody knows flesh is evil. So Jesus could. So it's be. like holy scratch and sniff. Holy That's scratch true. and sniff. Okay. And and Jesus was not going to be scratched and sniffed. So they wrote the Apostles' Creed, and then. A few centuries later, along come the, comes the opposite heresy, you know, the two natures of Jesus, he's fully human and fully divine. Well, the next group, the Arians, are going, hey, look, you know, Jesus, Jesus is really God-like. He's, he's God-y. He's like one step below God, but he's not really God. And so they're sitting there fighting over who is Jesus using the exact same, not just the same Bible, but the same testament and even the gospel of John, you know, and so you've got, you know, you've got um, you know, Arius out there singing. There was a time when he was not using John 14, 28, the great, the father is greater than I. And the, the church historic answered, yeah, but John 10, 30, the father and I are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the father, John 14, nine. So, so you've got, the church arguing out of the same gospel, and at one point, even out of the same upper room discourse, and coming to no, no agreement, and they had to come up with, what's our method of determining truth 
when the Bible alone is not enough. So sorry, Matt, I know you work for Reform Seminary and to say sola scriptura is, but even the five solas aren't alone. You know, there's five of them. There's not one of them. So, so I've that's- got a friend, I've got a friend, by the way, who wrote a paper that he wants to argue adding a sixth sola. So, and and I think he's got some, some grounds uh, to consider that because for the same reasons you're describing is- they're insufficient or they're 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 brought up at a particular time and place to answer particular questions that are being wrestled through correct yeah yeah so that's um so so it's uh, not so solo it, yeah it's solo yeah. scripture <laughs> not solo scripture <laughs> yeah right right you know matt i think that you bring up some really important uh, uh aspects here for us to remind us of and and two i think what's interesting is for those who grow up perhaps or their predominant faith background in Christianity may be more evangelical on the nature and so less uh, traditional. Um, you know, we start talking about the creeds and it just sounds so old, so ancient, so sterile, you know, for a culture, um, especially here in the West, that is just consumer driven. We're always hungry for new. We want new. We want change. We want something that evolves with time. We want it to be relevant. We want it to be sexy. We want it to be amazing and fresh and you know, once the new iPhone comes out, I have to have the new one. When the new Xbox system comes out, I got to have the new one. Um, is are we are we kind of coming to an end of ourselves? You think culturally to the point where we're starting to realize maybe the old is actually kind of like we need to lean back into that. Have we so subdivided ourselves um, and where our hunger for new is just completely lost all relevance at this point? So I wonder if. 9-11 wasn't the end of evangelicalism as we know it. And, and I agree I too, with you on this point, by the way, but I, I want to hear more. Okay. So so I too am an evangelical who's who's also an Episcopal priest. So I'm an evangelical who embraced the other 19 and a half <laughs> centuries. You know, I, once, I once walked into a seminary classroom. I think I think Andrew was in this class and the, yes, the, I was. I remember this. Collar, and uh, the professor looks at me and says, oh, his eminence is here in his collar. Should we bow before the Pope? And I looked at him and he's wearing a Hawaiian print shirt. And I thought, huh, that, you know, oh, the tradition has arrived. And I, and I just as I'm walking with my backpack to my seat in the back of the class, I look at him. He's he's wearing a Rick Warren Hawaiian print shirt. And I said, you know, um, I'm wearing a, a shirt that represents 18 centuries of the faith. You're wearing one that represents three decades of Rick Warren. It's all a tradition. It's just a matter of whose tradition we're going to embrace. You know, and like the guy didn't really know what to say with that. And you know, I'm not sure, you know, lots of what passes as tradition is just traditionalism. And and uh traditionalism has been defined as the dead faith of the living. Nobody needs traditionalism, but tradition, the living faith of the dead, is what we all need. And I think what happened in 9-11 is we realized that the there's an end of the American deal. And the American deal was always, you, you're nice, you're a good kid, you get married, you have a baby, you get a job, you, at the end of your life, you're going to retire at 65, and you'll be wealthy and travel for the rest of your life. And all of a sudden, in 9-11, the, the wraps are taken off that deal. Someone might blow you up just because you're, you, you, you're an American. Um, your parents might have gotten a divorce. Nothing in your life 
feels like it will stand the test of time. You know, you live in a stucco tract home that looks like the other 1,500 stucco tract homes, all built on the same model in your development. You eat at the hashtag same- Hashtag Phoenix. Hashtag, hashtag Valley hashtag Life. Hashtag Florida. Yeah, yeah. Hashtag Florida. Um, we, we eat at the same seven chain restaurants all across America. So I think that that the the shine of that has come off. And I think people are hungry for something that's worked before and we can be confident will, will work again because it's worked everywhere always and by all who've embraced it. Yeah, I I, I think that is so well said, uh, Father Matt. And uh, <laughs> maybe I'll just go with that. Um, but I, I think that is so well said. And I agree completely with you on that statement that I think 9-11 was uh, the end of what you say is American deal, or maybe even that that concept of the American dream. Um, like I referenced my podcast earlier, uh, it's called the Restoring Hope podcast for those listening. And actually, I did a whole episode on that, uh, episode 20, Hope in a Post-9-11 World. And actually, I talked a lot about that same idea, Matt, of, of I that was a turning point for us. And, and we now have this new story that we have to um, live in and embrace and walk through. And you know, and this conversation, I think, is so helpful because it forces us as a culture, forces us as a people of faith to rediscover those common bonds and rediscover that that core truth. And even if it means just breaking apart all the systems and all the other pieces, uh, almost going through this deconstruction type process to rediscover that truth. And Michael, as you're rightfully bringing us to is what are the core things? What are those essential things that unite us together as people of faith, as people of the word, as people of, of scripture, as those who claim to follow in the ways of Jesus, what are those core things? Um, and, and how has that evolved over time? If, and if, and should it even, um, and, and how do we contextualize? And of course, now we have all these other kind of questions that we're going to keep wrestling through, but what are those, you know, at the end of the day, those core things that are going to unite us. And then how do we move forward from here? And I think what we see in the creeds, again, in reference to Vincent, is uh, that this isn't something that, well, I guess, I suppose you could say, and I think Vincent would agree, that these are things that uh, progress. They don't innovate. And uh, that's so important as we think about where it is that we're heading, that whatever comes after evangelicalism isn't going to be an innovation, but it's going to be progress on uh, what has been in our past. And if we don't understand what has been in our past, then we're going to end up innovating. And that, of course, is what happens with Arius prior to him, the, the Docetists, um, and then after him, the Nestorians and the, the wrongly accused Pelagians and uh, the, all of those other types of heresies. Um, they're trying to innovate rather than to progress on what's gone before them. So it's uh, if I'm hearing this right, if we feel like we're finally able to go forward and say, finally, we have the right new idea. Whoever claims that we should run from them as fast as possible because the new idea is ending up going down. I mean, I don't want to say the route of heresy, but it's certainly not helpful. It's certainly not helpful. Um, uh, either Matt or even Michael, like, how do you feel? Do you feel the creeds are an extension 
of the all time everywhere by everyone sort of belief? Or are the creeds something separate from that sort of mindset? Well, in, in part, they're contextual. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind. They, they did have a purpose. Um, and originally, I mean, we also have to keep in mind that we're talking about a society that was not literate. And so it was very important for uh, Christians to be able to, to recite what it was that they believed because they weren't able to read what they believed. And so uh, the recitation of the creeds became important, an important part of discipleship. But besides that, as Matt already made reference to, um, it, the creeds were contextual. They were dealing with particular issues in particular periods of time that um, were important for the believers to uh, find unity on what it was that they believe. I, I just wanted, I want to loft an idea which is that the um, philosophically the fourth century might have been the most articulate philosophical group of people to ever dwell on the planet, and um, and, and so I think while the second century in Israel that might have been true, the fourth century in both the East and West Church, the the. Greek philosophy and the Latin philosophers were remarkably articulate, sophisticated people. And I think what they were trying to do in the creeds was have the, the biggest fence around what you could consider Christian. And, and I think the big fence in the second century was make sure you know Jesus is really human and in the fourth century, it was make sure you know Jesus is really God. And, and that's why they added God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. I mean, they, they add all of that because they realized we have this, this problem based on, you know, based on obscure Greek terms, homoousius, <laughs> you know, we're we've got to create a situation where where people know what it is you believe and if the three great human questions are how did i get here well you were made the christian answer you were made by by god what went wrong the christian answer sin how's it fixed jesus and you have some kind of soteriology and what do i do now the early church doubled down on that first question and and they're they're their perception in the first five centuries was, as long as you get who is God right, the rest will end up okay. So you may disagree a lot on, on your soteriology. You know, mm -hmm. What does Jesus' death actually mean? And how does Jesus' death save you? But as long as you get the, the Godhead right, you know, as long as you're... So, so I think what the creeds are really doing is trying to give you a lucky, uh, you know, the Johnny Quest in the 1960s when I was a kid, they used to, Johnny Quest was on, on the cartoons and um, at Saturday morning. And you could right away and get the Johnny Quest 3D decoder glasses. And I think what they were trying to do is give us the 3D decoder glasses for reading the Bible. And the 3D decoder glasses said, you read the you read the Bible and you see Jesus as a trinity of, you see the Godhead as a trinity of persons who are yet one God. Mm -hmm. 
And, and so I think that's the purpose of the creed that, that we utilize today, but don't know that we're, we're doing it. We read through a creedal lens and really don't know we're reading through a creedal lens. Well, we've, we've lost that in our systematics to some extent, for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm 100% agree, Matt, that the creeds are formulated on a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. I mean, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit are the three markers of uh, the, both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Uh, that We do see, of course, some, I think Karl Barth uses that as his uh, outline for his dogmatics, as does Thomas Oden. Uh, but in large part, you know, our systematic theologies build even further uh, on those understandings and in going into areas that oftentimes bring uh, confusion and division, perhaps theologically on different issues. But where there is unity historically for the church has always been in uh, the the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. Okay, so then what? Do we need, uh, gosh, this is so presumptuous, but it is funny because this is not the first time this has been asked. So do we need a new creed? Is there, is there a new cultural uh, question that we need if to If you can answering? create an ecumenical council, you can create exactly. a new creed. Un- without an ecumenical council, <laughs> it's, it's not a creed. It's not so a creed, how, right? How are we going to get them all? great opinion. <laughs> How are we well, going to get them I, all together in the room? Yeah, well, Andrew, I think you asked the right question. Do we need a new creed? And I would, I, I think I would land almost categorically and say no. Why? Do, what is there to be improved upon here? Um, do we need a? Do we need to express it in a different way? Well, perhaps. Um, what are the issues that we're dealing with today that might need to be? Uh, incorporated into those, into the creedal formulation that we already have, so that it's expressed in a language that people can understand today. Um, and, and that, I mean, Matt, you make reference to the, the sophistication of the philosophy of the third and fourth century. And I mean, we would say even back to the second century with Origen and Justin and others, I mean, these were sophisticated people who were formulating these understandings of Christianity, but they did it in such a way that it was accessible to the people who would read them. Uh, Today, we might be in a situation where some of the formulations that we read, particularly of the the Chalcedonian uh, addition to the creed, um, the, the complexity that the Nicene Creed has has uh, has seen with additions to it, that maybe those need to be explained and and rearticulated in language that's understandable. Michael, I think we've already noted just because we have Father Matt with us, I don't think we have really broadened our um, non-evangelical base listening to this podcast. And so I'm not sure. A sacramentalist in it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, so, but you're referencing changes. So the, what, what was added, right? You're referencing shorthand that the Nicene Creed was written and then changed and then changed or added. So what are you referring to? Or even Matt jump in with your, uh, your knowledge of this answer too, so that we can all be on the same page of what you're talking about. Well, the interesting thing in the development of the Nicene Creed, of course, is it was addressing the Arian issue uh, of of uh, who Jesus is and what his nature is. 
his divinity in particular, but also, you know, whether or not he was uh, indeed co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, and the remarkable thing about this, I think, historically, is that the majority of bishops that were at those early councils, particularly the first one in Nicaea, were Arian bishops. Um, and it was the, the uh, courage of a lonely deacon from, uh, the, the, from um, Alexandria who stood the ground for what became known as uh, the, the, the uh, nature of Christ, the, and in particular, his incarnation. And that here we're speaking of Athanasius. And largely because of his arguments, it turned the whole tide of the council to uh, favor uh, what we today know as uh, the the uh, nature of Christ being fully divine and fully human. Um, so at there was time, at one time I wanted to name my child Athanasius. That my That's love for Athanasius person. is so high. Uh, but my convincing of Megan that our child should be Athanasian, it was a very short conversation. It's very short. <laughs> anyway, continue on. Michael. I can't imagine why. And so there was consensus then from that point on about what it was that the church was going to believe about the Trinity, in particular about the nature of Christ. And then it was later, Matt, you might recall better than me, but it seems to me that in the sixth century, um, we begin to see additions to that Nicene Creed, and in particular, the addition of what's called the Philoke, uh, what became known as the Philoke controversy, the addition of the procession of the Holy Spirit being not only from the Father, but the Father and the Son, which, of course, was the starting point of the fissure between the, the Eastern and the Western Church. I mean, you've got, um, you know, Nicaea is called because Constantine has made Christianity legal and has said, hey, I'm going to divide, a, I'm going to unite a divided uh, empire on, on Christianity. And then he finds out we're all fighting with each other. And, uh, and basically it started because this guy Arius had come up with a nice ditty. There was a time when he was not. And, and basically he was teaching what, what we would you know, what we would look at and say, oh, gosh, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, maybe a little bit of the LDS. And, and the, they have a, you know, they convene a meeting and, and uh, Constantine rides in in his purple outfit and tells everyone to sit down and hash this out or you're not leaving. And they do. And, uh, and, and everybody but two people vote for the traditionalists, <coughs> you know, the orthodox position. And really, they had two arguments the whole time: they Catholicity and Orthodoxy. This this is the what the Church has always taught universally under under the leadership of the bishops, and this is the deposit of faith, which is our creed. And so they just had to add definition to the creed in the fourth century. Now, at the next council, I think the next one was in might have been in Ephesus, might have been the second ecumenical council. Constantinople. They, Constantinople. Yeah, in Constantinople, they they add a little bit of clarity around the Holy Spirit. And then you've got a problem in the West. And the problem in the West is that you've got uh, you've got 
Arians, again, starts in the 6th century with the Germanic tribes overrunning the Western Empire, and they're, they're bringing their Aryan faith. And so they add, they add filioque, which is Latin for and the sun. They add that to the, to the Nicene Creed, where it says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and they add one word, filioque, and the son to the creed in order to make an argument to the Aryan invaders that um, you need to not be Aryan. So you can conquer us, but you need to become an Orthodox Christian. Well, this becomes an argument in the East based on, um, hey, you can't just change theology. And so the names of the two churches are instructive. You know, Catholic, we're universal. We're the church. We're, we're Rome. We're the church. We tell you what to believe. And, and in the East, they say, but we're teaching the same old stuff. We're teaching orthodoxy, that right belief, you know, right glory. So the, the names of the churches to this day are, illustrate the argument. You know, we can change it because we're the church. You can't change it because we weren't there and we're the ones still teaching what the church taught. So orthodoxy and Catholicity are, are two important uh, impulses we need to balance today. In 1054, they end up splitting over it. But I think about half of the split was really, you know, there were some other issues in there, the date of Easter, the style of cutting hair for monks. But the real big one is they don't actually communicate. You know, they're in the West, they're speaking Latin. In the East, they're speaking Greek. So they're all confused in the meetings and aren't really sure what's going down. And they end up voting each other off the island. And the Orthodox and the Catholic have since, you know, mostly buried the hatchet, although they still disagree on that one word. And uh, and if you look at an Anglican prayer book today, most of them have either uh, leave the word in with some kind of explanatory caveat or, or have removed it or are going to remove it. So what you're saying is one of the issues that divided the church was whether they wanted Pepsi or Coke, but but a creedal faith, right? Something that we're we're talking about. Um, let going back to the question of what unites us. How do we think uh, we as the church? So all that to be said, it's probably a good idea not to write a new one. If adding yes. one word caused the first great division in the church, writing a new one probably not a great idea. I think I knew the answer to my question. I just wanted to get it out there so that we could have some uh, banter on that exact thought. And so since the answer is a clear and, and vibrant, no, no, let us not do that. If then that answer is no, how do we in our fractured, fissured, very separated state with the 40,000 denominations. How do we work forward then together so that we can see this world united under that great king and not further divided and separated and uh, just so different from each other? Well, I'm the outsider. So I'll give you my outsider take and then you guys can... um... Oh, and now my phone decides to ring. Um, I'll give you my outsider take, and then you guys can push back or just poo-poo me. Um, my, my first thought on it is that evangelicalism has to disengage, not, not as Andy Stanley said from the Old Testament, but disengage from the culture wars. 
I okay, so you've that. got all of us agreeing with you. So <laughs> how though, right? Right. That's the outsider. That's the outsider talking. Yeah. So so we agree, but if we disengage from the culture war, how does that get us closer? And in what ways are you talking about? Well, and what would you do instead of the culture war? That's that's the big question. So um, what what if instead the um, what if instead the church decided to have uh, a a a uh, teach a robust you know what what the question is what was it that allowed eleven scared dudes to take over the Roman Empire in two and a half centuries you know most powerful empire that had ever existed taken over by eleven scared dudes in two hundred and fifty years. And how did they do that? And the answer is mostly by being fed to lions, impaled on stakes, and lit on fire as streetlights. And and while that was going on, they prayed for the world. Well, that's intense. Yeah, I'd say I was like, so what you're saying is they didn't argue uh, about the latest series on Netflix that they're going to protest. That was they didn't. They were. Yeah, and I think Andrew, you make a great point. They, they, um, there were, of course, conversations. Uh, Peter and Paul didn't always agree, but they worked those things out. But what they united on, I think, is important in terms of who they were as the body of Christ. That they united on the mission that was before them, and they carried out that mission faithfully, uh, knowing that uh, they were in indeed commissioned by Christ to do the things that they they were doing, and so there was that uh, unifying understanding of of their mission. If you read the early church, I don't I don't see unified mission nearly as much as I expected to. When I read the early fathers. The one place I really see an evangelistic letter is, is uh, the letter to Matthew Tastes, letter to Dionysius by Matthew Tastes. That's like the one evangelistic, you know, like the just relentlessly evangelistic letter. Mostly, mostly I see them struggling to maintain unity of their, their orthodoxy internally and struggling and and their catholicity so when you read the early church fathers they're saying they're talking about the two things the deposit of faith and the the uh the visible unity of the church under the bishops and the hardest thing we have today is that we're not all united under a group of bishops who are all in in consultation with one another you know like when um we before we pressed play I referenced Lancelot Andrews, who was a Reformation era Archbishop of Canterbury in the, you know, under James I and Elizabeth. And he said, when we talk about the tradition, we're talking about one, one Bible, one canon, two testaments, three creeds, four councils in the first 500 years. And, and we're, you know, basically you're talking about an undivided church underneath the deposit of faith of the creeds and underneath the visible unity of the bishops. And we don't have that. We blew that in 1054. And then we blew it a bunch more in the 1500s. 
Yeah, well, we might say even uh, that we blew it in 451 with the division between the uh, Chalcedians and non-Chalcedians uh, Christologies. But yeah, I, yeah, I mean, at some level, Matt, I agree with you. Um, uh, at another level, you know, for example, when I read First Clement, uh, he was deeply, or they, I, I think Clement, that first letter was written by a group of leaders from Rome to the church in Corinth. But as I read that, they were deeply concerned for the witness of the church, and they knew that their disunity was having a negative impact on the perception of Christians. And so I think to talk about the evangelistic nature of the first century church is to understand that for them, that nature was most expressed in the way in which they lived their lives. They weren't necessarily going out into the streets or door to door uh, sharing the three circles or the four spiritual laws or, or you know, whatever modern oh, evangelistic you. strategy we might be employing Anathema. today. Anathema. Well, way, well like the four circles. <laughs> yeah. You know, but they, they were living road. their lives. Romans rode all the way. Yeah. But so, they, they lived their lives, uh, it, and that was an evangelistic witness to those who were around them. So, so here's the uncomfortable maybe realities that we're going to have to face here moving forward is if we believe that a some sort of a return and a resurgence, a uh, re-understanding of these original creeds and perhaps a renewed commitment, right, a restored commitment to these creeds um, as a unifying place uh, is where we need to end up. Um, we need to begin with what I think, Matt, you know, Father Matt, you're saying is we need to disengage from the culture wars, which means that I think we have to start to recognize that in our preaching, in our teaching, in our reading of scripture, that oftentimes we try to turn, we try to, we think scripture speaks more to things than, than it really does perhaps in our everyday life. Um, we're going to have to shelve um, the, the literature on that scripture teaches us uh, everything we need to know about marriage and dating that scripture is going to inform the way we do business and everything. We got to like scrap all the niche books and we're going to have to start kind of backing off that train, which means that a lot of pastor's sermons are going to have to be rewritten, which means, and, and not preached any longer. And then, you know, the things that we start winning people to to church about the topical sermons are going to start having to kind of back down from there. But, but I do think this speaks to a lot of our consumeristic trends and a lot of the things that we start to try to make scripture speak to. But you can see where it goes and the reason how we got here, though, can't we? We can see that even from the early days, life is complex. Life is difficult. There are significant issues and debates and concerns and problems to be solved in the state of the world and humanity. And and we're facing them again today and still. And we look to something or to someone to help us resolve these issues. And ultimately it is to the, the Godhead, right? Father, son, spirit. And, and in our pursuit to have certainty in how we can resolve these things, we start mining the scriptures in ways that perhaps we've abused them um, to speak into these things more than they really do. And rather we need to re rediscover um, our unity together by, by kind of backing off these um that our, our political platforms, our social platforms, and we need to start to kind of rediscover 
God. Um, and maybe that's it. It's just kind of the beginning of let's rediscover God and, and who he is. Well, yeah, I think you're right, Matt. I think it is a rediscovery of who God is and how we express that in our contemporary culture. But it's also a, a um, it has to be an introspection of ourselves and how we're living out our, our faith. And what I love about the early church and the early apostolic fathers and their writings is that they're always pointing people back to imitating the apostles and those who had gone before them. And, and calling people to that lifestyle. And, um, and we don't, I don't think we do enough of that today. And, and it could be because we don't have people that we would point to and say, hey, be like that person, do what that person is doing. Um, but we certainly can point back to the life of the apostles, the life of Christ, uh, imitating him and, uh, and living you know, like, uh, like we should be living uh, to be more Jesus-y in our cultures. Yeah, I, I think, Michael, you tee up a really important thing. Are, are, we, are we teaching people how to walk with God or just teaching people how to have answers to contemporary problems? And the problem is that, that our parishioners ask us to have answers to contemporary problems that fit their political paradigm. And unfortunately, the church has embraced either being a either either being an elephant or a donkey and not following the lamb and and at some point if we don't equip people to walk with god we're going to continue to be further and further irrelevant and that's the job of leadership is to to do what is what is needful regardless of what people are asking for you learn that in youth ministry. If you give kids what they want, and as a parent, you know, my kids always wanted cake and never wanted broccoli. I was about to say it's sugar and Mountain Dew, right? Isn't that the youth minister's answer? Well, and as a parent, as a parent, you learn, I got it. I have to lead my kids as they ought to be led, not as they want to be led. And that was true in youth ministry. And the tougher thing is when it's people that are our age and older, you know, when it's our peers and our elders that are saying, I want you to tell me why I shouldn't wear a mask or why I should wear a mask. You know, it, I want you to tell me who I should vote for and what I should think about fill in the hot button topic. Well, it sounds like in a way that you're saying it's so funny is that, yeah, so a lot of churches have been saying, here's how you should look like a donkey or here's how you should look like an elephant. And I think, sadly, the reaction is not what we're hoping for of how do you look like the lamb, but the reaction is, here's how you don't look like a donkey. Here's how you don't look like an elephant. And so we've swung the other way so that we're actually almost, again, we're trying to argue people away from a point, but we're not trying to encourage people to one. Yeah, And that is Christ-likeness in all things, in every part of our lives, which then, Michael, I mean, I'm in full agreement, that is evangelistic right? Like uh, when talking about Christ-likeness, it is an outward-facing ordeal. Yes, it is born and rooted out in our heart and our character, uh, being humble, understanding we are broken and that he makes us whole, living out that hope, hashtag Matt's podcast. Um, But the, the truth is looking like Jesus is always an outward thing. And it is always 
something that is worth talking about, right? Like we're not going to run out of things to say. We don't need to look at our sermon calendar and say, well, we talked about following Jesus those last three Sundays. So what's next? Isn't there a book like The Great Rearrange where it talks about how people are moving to places where people share their political philosophies? About 10 years ago. Haven't heard about it. I've literally watched family after family either move toward where we are or move away from where we are because they want to be around like-minded people. Mm. And it's, it's so completely sad. And, and it's really tough to lead a church that has some straddling of that divide, like where there is act, where there are actually people that voted for two parties in great numbers in your body. It, it really is simpler to double down on the culture war. Yeah. You know, it's actually funny is in our move to Florida, when we were starting to tell people about it, one of the things is, as I was describing, so we moved from Chicago, from Illinois. Um, and, you know, it was interesting that as we were sharing, you know, with our move, the number of people that were telling me like, oh man, you're going to Florida. Oh my, it was all political. Like they assumed that the reason I was moving was politically motivated in the moment. Wait, well, um, how could they get that with you? I mean, you're moving from a blue state to a red state. Well, that because right, because that in the concern. blue in the blue state is it's so blue that it's going to hell in a handbasket. So go to the place where the grass is greener um, politically. Um, and so for them, they're like, yeah, that, oh my gosh, get out of there, get moving. You know what I mean? That, that, that state's to run the way it should be, you know? And I'm like, you know, and, and I'm just like, wow, this is, you know, Matt, to your point, like how depressing that that's the way you think about me and the assumption you're making, you know? Um, so actually I started telling people that I'm moving to Miami, uh, which is pretty much true. I'm in Fort Lauderdale. And so it's, you know, so then that in their mind kind of triggered a different, so, you know, a different kind of reason in their mind, but going, you know, cause when you say Florida, they think, you know, up North Palm beach or something like that. Uh, and, and so Orlando or whatever. And, and so Tallahassee, some of the other Jacksonville um, that might be a little more Bible belt ishy. Um, but when I say Miami, they kind of go, Oh, interesting. <laughs> it was just really interesting to see people's responses that I was getting. And I had to change my response to how it was because it's just like, this isn't, wow, ask me a different question. <laughs> Don't make the assumption, you know, and this is really sad state of affairs that we live in, you know, and, and I've said it before, but I, I, I think it bears saying again, only because in this, in this world we live in right now and in this political moment is the church has its work cut out for it if it's going to remain relevant and true um, and if it's going to remain a place in the cultural story, because there are so many other voices every single day, every night that are drawing us into the political cultural wars. And admittedly, the people in our churches are being discipled every single night, depending upon the political spewing of radio talk show hosts, TV talk show hosts, opinion people, people who are writing opinion articles, uh, that is who is discipling the members of our church right now. And, um, and we have a lot of work cut out for us. Wouldn't you agree with that, Matt? Um, I think we 
absolutely have our work cut out for us. I think at some level, we're going to have to convince people to let the church catechize them and not their newsfeed. And then we're going to have to deliver. And you know who that starts with? That starts with us, right? It's, it's you, the listener. It is you, the pastor. It is you, the leader. Like we have to stop being um, catechized by our newsfeed. Um, this is hilarious. This actually was like one of my main points on my sermon Sunday uh, that we need to alter our input. And we have got to do it. And it has to start with us, right? This isn't just a really nice soundbite for a sermon. And it isn't what everybody else needs to do. It has to start with us. We need to be formed by the things that are leading us to Christ's heart. Yeah. And I I think here, I mean, what keeps going through my mind is that this isn't a dialectic that we're talking about. It's It's not somebody telling you what uh, you're supposed to do, but it has to include somebody also doing what they're telling you to do or, or, uh, or admonishing or encouraging you to, to do. And, and that's where I think we lack that I've been discipleship, (laughs) right? Well, Well, yeah. Discipleship that is very intentional in pointing people to imitating Christ um, you guys know I've been doing this research on the practices of the ancient church and not too long ago was reading through Justin Martyr's first apology. And he has this beautiful description of, of the church and what they did on Sundays where they read the writings of the apostles or the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets as long as there was time. They, they would just keep reading it. And then the president would of the church would stand up and and admonish people and encourage them to imitate these things. There wasn't long expository, uh, elaborate sermons that were going on because they had the scriptures. And um, and I keep thinking for us today and, and what we do in our churches, do we really believe that we can add something to those scriptures? And should we not then instead focus our attention on encourage people people to uh, live those out, to imitate those things that we're hearing uh, rather than um, spending so much time trying to wax eloquently in front of our congregations. Father Matt's at uh, 15 minutes or less almost every week when he preaches. So he, uh, uh, he schools me on that frequently. I read his messages, I listen to them, and I think, how did you say so much so quickly and so succinctly? And then I'm jealous. I just keep thinking, I wish I had 30 minutes. <laughs> well, and I think what Justin is reminding us oh, is gosh, God, spend, spend those 30 minutes reading the apostles and the prophets uh, that people understand that stuff. You know, it's, it's not complicated or as complicated as we make it. Uh, and then encourage people to, to imitate those things that we're reading. The interesting thing about that passage in Justin's first apology is it describes the historic liturgy of the church. And, and literally the only thing that's been added since the second century when Justin writes as if this is the way every Christian everywhere is always writ- worshipped. The only thing added was the creed in the seventh century. So, that's, that's a remarkably stable format of worship. You read the word, you preach the word, you respond to the word, you go to the table. 
I love it. I'm in favor. Well, this is a great way for us to end and a great for a place for us to be able to land the plane. Um, Matt, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you and we look forward to having you join us again sometime. It was awesome to be with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And our pleasure. And, uh, you know, to our audience, thank you for doing Theology and Community with us here on the Ephesiology Podcast. We're glad that you are part of a, the growing Ephesiology global community. And you can learn more about Ephesiology and get access to free missional resources for you, your church, and leadership teams at Ephesiology.com and learn about our master classes that are available to you and your teams. So for Michael, Andrew, Father Matt, and myself, we'll talk again right here on the Ephesiology Podcast. <laughs>